0: Welcome, everyone, to the Guardians of the Flame podcast. This is a a great interview with my old friend, Peter Rons. Um, I've known Pete for many years, and and you'll hear about that in the interview. Just a a couple of reflections on the interview that we did. I suppose we've been doing this podcast for nearly six months now, and it's during that time we've interviewed people like Brian Zond, Jonathan Martin, Jared McKenna, Renee August in South Africa. I was made aware yesterday, the 7th of April it marks 25 years since the Rwandan genocide began. And one of our podcasts was an interview with Antoinette Mushmi Imana. It's an amazing really conversation on her journey of forgiveness and it really I think appropriately marks the 25 years since the genocide. She lost her mom on her twelfth birthday. So I encourage you, even before we get into this podcast, to maybe download that one as well. So it's been uh, it's been quite a journey these six months, and it's great to interview my friend Peter Owens. For some of you, you might be followers of Pete. You might be here because you're you follow everything he does, and you're kind of aware. Uh, and for you, uh, I think you're going to find this podcast interesting because I I talk about our friendship. 25 years ago back in Belfast when he was a young evangelical Christian and uh, we were living together. And now, uh, many years later, he's uh, he's a philosopher, writer, prolific communicator um, and known all around the world for the work that he does. I think for some people who've never heard of Pete, this podcast might kind of, I don't know if it's gonna blow your mind, but it might be difficult to totally follow it. And that's okay for you i hope this podcast is a bit of a primer on pete's work and it helps you to maybe dive more into it if you want to some people you know you might struggle to you know follow exactly what he's saying but what i'd say with all of these podcasts they're not kind of infallible directives what they are is real conversations with influential people in the world who are looking at particularly the areas of faith and religion and how faith and religion can be something that's not toxic and divisive, but something that brings health, healing, wholeness, life. And ultimately, as Pete talks about, a community of love. And so I hope that as we share here, uh, you know, you really dive into that. Also, can I just say, um, we have a Patreon site, patreon.com forward slash guardians of the flame, we would love to see the number of patrons growing in that, so please consider supporting us. You can support us with as little as $5 a month. It's a US site, so it all does it in US dollars. We had someone last week start supporting us $25 a month, and it just actually really helps. What I'd say is that we are uploading kind of bonus content there all the time so you can see videos of steve stockman doing a poem or Padraig or extracts of of him talking but for instance in this podcast with peter rollins the last 15 minutes uh, we've videoed it and that'll be up there on the patreon site for patrons so if you want to have access to that uh, kind of bonus content then get along to patreon.com forward slash guardians of the flame and support us and see all the bonus stuff that's there. Anyway, enough of all this talk. I hope you're able to enjoy this podcast and thanks for being part of the bigger community of people making this a reality, a community of people seeking to guard the flame of humanity in the world today. I'm uh, Johnny Clark, if you haven't heard this podcast before, and I'm going to introduce in a second one of, uh, I guess he's one of my oldest friends, I'm not necessarily oldest, but He's very old. I'm not not a friend either. (laughs) He's not really a friend. I mean, he's a guy I met once... uh, he's 46, which I was amazing. you really 46. Johnny, you know, the problem with
1: having a cheap uh, jacket, is that <laughs> squishy? I like it. I like yeah, it. Is that yeah. part of the sound effects yeah, for the, yeah, uh, cheap the podcast? Jacket, yeah, so I, I do know. like it, actually. If yeah. anyone's watching this on video, I'm mm. jealous. Yeah, a if nice you're jacket. on
0: Patreon, you can. It costs only 100 quid on Patreon. Too. And you can see the video yeah. of Johnny's jacket. Yeah, You're yeah. <laughs> no, not meant to talk yet. I'm doing my intro. Sorry, sorry. Keep uh, going. Yeah, I'll yeah, keep yeah. quiet. All right. So this is one of my oldest acquaintances. who At one point in my life, I actually cared about. We name. lived together. Yeah, we did in Tates um, Modern, in Forty Nine Tates Avenue in South Belfast. And um, Pete, uh, I have probably known Pete since the mid nineties, I suppose. And we were part of a big church in East Belfast. Then went to university together, and then we, I joined a, a very large evangelical Christian missionary organisation, and he did. Pete did. Pete did something very similar to that. <laughs> <laughs> our, our career paths followed similar trajectories. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm very rich and famous right now. Yeah. No, I'm um, actually neither of those things. But um, no, and uh, so yeah, I've known Pete for years. And uh, but of course, ten years ago, Pete moved to uh, North America, I guess to the USA. And um, and I've been working over here ever since. For those who don't know me, the quick disclaimer is: I'm a New Zealander by birth, but lived here since I was eight. Um, and uh, and. Last year, I was involved with a friend of mine, Josh Eaves, and a few others in producing a film called Guardians of the Flame. And this podcast kind of accompanies that documentary, but it's a bit broader than that, I suppose. But uh, loosely, the documentary looks at the toxic effects of, um, I suppose, religious nationalism. When, when you combine a religious faith with a strong belief in your own tribe, And you use that to justify violence and war. And we saw that in Northern Ireland. We, Pete and me, grew up in Belfast. And of course, like good Belfast people who grew up during the Troubles, we didn't really notice that they were going on. You kind of just kind of got used to it. Um, So that's the documentary that I made. And you can find the, if you Google that, you'll find it. the the film Not name, Guardians of the Galaxy. <laughs> no, no. Because right, I've not seen that. that That's a good one. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah, yeah. My, this is a little bit different. So, Slightly lower budget. <laughs> yeah, very much lower budget. You couldn't <laughs> even really compare. Their tea budget was probably more than our yes. film budget. <laughs> so Guardians of the Flame comes from a quote from uh, uh, former chief rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who in his book, The Dignity of Difference, said Religion is like fire and like fire it warms but it also burns and we're the guardians of the flame. So that's the kind of, that's where I'm coming from. That's what this podcast loosely is about. And when I heard Pete, my old friend was over visiting. I, I thought, like the way he keeps saying old.
1: <laughs> you take no pleasure in that. Like just, he's got a big yeah, smile on his face. He says because I turned 46 yeah, a few days ago. I know yeah.
0: you're, you're halfway to the gates of, the pearly gates. I think know. I'm more than halfway. Yeah, sadly, maybe. Yeah. with your diet, you're yeah, four fifths. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, so that's that's the introduction. It's really good to have Pete. Pete is, um, I guess he, I guess you'd say you are a theologian in a sense, particularly in the sphere of radical theology. You're, you've been known for popularizing the death of God theology, mm-hmm. and actually, you're very bright. And and yeah. as I was kind of uh, thinking about this um i thought i think we're just going to wing this podcast we're going to talk about the old days and we're going to talk about life and through it all i hope we find a good conversation that really is meaningful to people um and maybe bring sheds a bit of light on your own work and your own life and even a bit of um the kind of bit of what we're doing too so yeah i
1: think you know this will be nice and personal but it might elucidate something about radical theology as well in the midst of it all yeah 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 whatever so, that is whatever so that we'll is see, yeah we'll see so
0: for the sake of the video i'm going to take yeah please like, take jacket that jacket off because it, it is, is squidging like away squidging you know? away <laughs> so um all right so let's talk
1: let's we've both uh, got our pulling x on by the I way know, we're matching i know yeah. when i saw
0: you had it on i thought i'd better go and change actually it you did mind. change i noticed that yeah yeah this is my uh tv jumper right very good um, so, Pete, let's talk. Like, a lot of people would know you from, um, well, a lot of people don't know you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, more people don't know <laughs> but, me. <laughs> uh, but, but, but those who do would know you from, uh, you've got uh, your podcasts, YouTube videos, online stuff. You've got, uh, you know, Patreon followers who, who do your webinars and all kinds of stuff. Um, and you've spoken around the word books. How many mean? books? How many how, books? Because
1: I mean, obviously you've done your research, yeah. so just yeah, let me like, know. Uh, what, what you've, books?
0: You wrote a book, How Not to Speak of God, oh. that became <laughs> kind of. because uh, I you think should, I wrote
1: that when I was still in Tates, probably. Yeah, that's why you knew that. I know, that. Yeah. and you had
0: brackets around the knot. That that's was right, the clever yeah, thing, and everyone goes, I'm going to buy that book who's got brackets around the okay. knot. It's the only one
1: that ever sold. Is that right? Well, no, actually, it did okay. but
0: Americans call brackets parentheses, apparently.
1: wow. This is like in International. I
0: know we're oh. going global. So yeah. Um, yeah so um, yeah. How not to speak of God was your yeah. was your first book
1: and the only one that I ever read the cover of. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and. Uh, well, you no. had to even ask me, Pete, what do you do? Like, he said at the beginning, oh, Pete is a, a leading proponent of the death of God theology. <laughs> yeah, I had to tell you, death yeah, of God yeah, theology yeah. in there.
0: I knew that, man. You've been talking about death of God forever. Oh, yes, yeah, booze. Um, I, I, I was there when that. Pete first ripped a Bible up in front of the church. <sighs> That's right. And gave a heart attack to half the audience. How was I that? think I was leading worship that day, and you were judging my kind of song list of um, you know, we exalt thee and uh, all kinds of stuff, and you're like, this isn't going to lead well into ripping the
1: Bible up. Yeah, no, no but, not uh, in fairness, there wasn't it, much that led it, up well yeah. to that moment in a charismatic evangelical <laughs> church. It, it, yeah, I know,
0: I know, I know. <laughs> so anyway, let's so let people know you from all that kind of stuff, but let's go right back to, um, I guess, the early days. So.
1: Um, I love uh, the fact you're leaving that hanging by the way that I ripped the Bible uh, uh, up. Like, we'll did back. I do we'll, it? We'll, we'll come <laughs> back. If you yes. if
0: you listen to this podcast longer right to than the 20 begin, minutes, end. you'll you'll get to the ripping the Bible bit up. Yes. <laughs> um, so let's go before that okay. when you were um, a terrible pagan and then um, found the light. And, <laughs> yes. uh, so um, so Belfast in the nineteen eighties, nineties was uh, yeah, it was during the Troubles, very polarized Protestant Catholic Protestants with high church attendance. There's not a lot of divergent thinkers in Belfast in the early 90s, yeah. you know. Weren't famous for it. You were finishing school when you were about 16. Was it Grosvenor
1: you went to Grosvenor? No, Orangefield. I went to Orangefield. Orangefield. I went to one of the yeah. toughest and oh, man, worst schools man, in Northern Ireland. Schools. like it yeah. wasn't even, yeah. I got Van CSE.
0: The Van Morrison, he lived, grew up around the corner yeah, from Yeah, but there. he didn't go,
1: I don't think he went to Orangefield. He might have, might maybe have he did. Yeah, yeah. All and the and George Best, did George Best go to Orangefield? Yeah, same kind of area, yeah. Like yeah.
0: George Best a football player. And um, so, and then you left there with no qualifications, right? No GCSEs. One GCSE. One, one a C <laughs> so in computer the studies. The average person finishes with seven or eight GCSEs. Yeah. Pete finished with one. Yeah. So his his trajectory of life. Uh, Prospects were not high.
1: I like to start low because then <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the only way is the up. The only
0: way is up. So <laughs> As ta- that said. Right, so, <laughs> t- t- can you tell us you had a conversion experience where um, you had no faith in God, presumably, uh, and and then you you experienced some kind of sensational. Uh, experience that that led you into a church fold and where hours yeah. a day somehow. It's funny because
1: I don't often talk about this part of my yeah, life but yeah, you know yeah, about it, yeah, that's funny. Yeah. yeah, I was actually, I was caught up in a pagan sandwich. Do you remember what a pagan sandwich no. is? No? Yeah, no, no. Oh, a pagan sandwich is great. So what you do is you get some sort of like a skit they do or some rap music or something. Uh, the Christians do something yeah. and there's a line of Christians and then oh. the pagans come in to watch what's happening yeah, yeah. and then oh, a line of Christians right. come in the back uh, and they create a pagan sandwich no way so yeah so I was caught up in a pagan sandwich really yeah, yeah. and then they can get to talk to you about the Jesus uh, you know? yes, um, no way and I, yeah I was coming out of the movie uh, it was it was Gremlins 2 I think wow so it wasn't that long ago wow well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I was with a pile of people 92 or something 93? yeah it must have been yeah. Yeah, yeah by the way if anybody wants the background in Northern Ireland in those days they should watch Derry Girls have oh. you watched? Derry oh, yeah, Girls? Dairy Girls, because it's brilliant. set really around that
0: time. Um, my friend, you know, Davey Kidd, his, oh, yeah. his daughter Shannon is an extra on oh, the latest episode good. of Dairy Girls. She just posted little photos of her. Oh, very good. So, her loads of Northern Ireland has got 15 seconds of fame out of that show now. Oh, yeah, you know, so.
1: yeah. Well, we shit a lot of stuff here now, but anyway, yeah. that was that was around those yeah, times. Yeah. But yeah, I, I didn't have a crazy experience on that night, but yeah, mm. a week later, um, I had. Uh, what you would call is yeah, a religious experience mm. in the true sense of the term mm. like um, not an experience of something but something mm. that changes your experience of everything because mm. mm. uh, people think of religious experience as an experience of something mm. but you can just take drugs for that that's easy mm. Mm. Um, but something that happens where how you experience everything changes mm. that, that I think warrants the the term a religious experience. Mm. Uh, In psychoanalysis, it would be an important thing, is that something that reconfigures your entire way of perceiving Mm. reality itself. Mm. Mm. So it's not like there's 10 experiences in your life and Mm. then you have a religious experience, so now you have 11 experiences. It's like the 10 experiences you have are different. And yeah, I did um, undergo something at 17, a, a mm. fundamental re, reconfiguration. Mm. Mm. Um, and that started me off in this path of interest in philosophy and mm. theology, mm. and radical theology. Mm. Mm. Now, radical theology came later, mm. but um, actually I just became a crazy... Uh,
0: yeah, because you became... You, you. We were part of a... a probably the largest charismatic church in in Belfast at the time uh, <laughs> wow
1: <laughs> that said something the largest in by, Belfast uh, yeah 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 <laughs> 20 people so yeah, and it was, 25 was actually people. quite big no yeah. no there was about
0: there was probably 1000 members um, and it was a, kind of the place to be if you were in that place for yeah, that time you yeah. know uh, and quite a lot of musicians and and stuff have come out of so uh, many musicians uh, you know, came out of that um, members of Snow Patrol, uh, yeah, you know, Jake Special, of course, um, Pete, and l- loads of people, um, and so. Y- you came into. <laughs> you a, kind of listed them all. <laughs> no, no. And, you know, loads uh, uh, of people. John, Johnny Clark. <laughs> Snow, Snow Patrol. <laughs> uh, John, uh, yeah. No, The Maroons. Uh, you oh, know. Yeah, yeah. Ian Archer. Ian Archer. Run it's the way. JC, which was a terrible Christian rap band. Oh, yeah. Run and the that JC. Was funny. That was bad. This podcast is going to be really relevant to you and me. I, I think everyone else is going to turn <laughs> off. They're not yeah. going to be able to stay listening to, to this. Yeah. Um, loads it. So. Um, so CFC was a was big evangelical charismatic church and you were caught up in that yeah. and you were a kind of a, a Jesus freak kind of yeah. telling people about Jesus. That was your big thing. Absolutely. And, and, we had the a, and there was a, a, a wonderful guy, Peter King, who, who yeah. sadly tragically died yeah, in yeah. those years. He was very influential in your life
1: at that That's time. Right. Is that right? Yeah, he was a very close friend and he actually had a kind of... That night I, we came out of Gremlins, mm. he had a very significant. Uh, change of life and experience, mm. and then a week or two later, I did. And we, I think so we were, were the both only both
0: non you both, neither of you were Christians yeah. at
1: that time. So that was funny because, like, you know, we were probably the only two people who ever got saved off street work, <laughs> <So> <laughs> they the they held in the world, yeah, so they held yeah. us up as like these two kind yeah. of whatever. Yeah. And we got fully involved, like, we just went crazy. Yeah, uh, yeah. and I loved every minute of it, yeah, yeah. and because
0: it, it gave you purpose
1: yeah, you
0: had a purpose and you know, sense of like being... even
1: though like my work now is the opposite of this, but but actually, and what what I hopefully will get into is that actually the the deeper I went into the Christianity, the more I went in the strange other direction. Mm. But it was actually um, by, it's like when you take it absolutely seriously, mm. it begins to crack and something new emerges. Mm. If you don't take it that seriously, mm. you just stay in mm. a very similar place mm. but like when you when you go all away you know get your put your record collection in the ocean you know mm. mortgage your house and give all your money to the church yeah, do all of yeah, that yeah. um and it doesn't work you uh, then through that failure you can get to somewhere really good yeah, and yeah. Uh, so part of my journey was going all in yeah, on yeah, that yeah. That and we both,
0: I would identify strongly with that, although we oh, yeah, were very you different, in, oh, yeah.
1: but uh, I'm still kind of <laughs> <laughs> just suffering
0: from going all in. But, um, and how do you, when you reflect back on those years of, I mean, I suppose you had, you've written a book about, um, you know, the uh, certainty and questioning, what was it? Oh yeah. That may be, be, oh,
1: ins- be the uh, idolatry of God.
0: The idolatry of God. Yeah. 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 And so, you know, very much you, you kind of espouse the idea that we mustn't cling to these shrines of, uh, of you know, entrenched belief, but yeah. be always willing for reimagination and rebirth of understanding. Um, so how do you look back on those times of like listening to Acton Baby and listening to preachers and CFC and hanging out with, Peter King and you've been excited about faith in God how, how does that how did that birth you into where you're at now
1: yeah incredibly important to me all of that experience uh, in multiple ways I mean mm-hmm. in one of the ways we talked about earlier is that I had no academic mm-hmm. background, never really read a book never taken any interest in anything intellectual. Mm-hmm. And then I was thrown into a world where people were talking about significant things. They were talking about uh, the nature of the universe. They were talking mm. about the question of meaning, uh, the question of vocation. And yeah, you know, I'd never been in a world where people thought about those things. So sometimes people say, oh, it, you know, any religion you get into, you have to sign your brains off at the door. Mm. And I know a lot of people have had that experience, but for me... It was the opposite. It was like, oh my goodness, I'm around people who are asking large questions and mm. I have no equipment to even be able to articulate mm. them. That, mm. And so it sparked off something in me. Mm. Um, and as well as that, even things like uh, learning how to speak in front of people. Because
0: no. uh, you, you did a kind of a gap year that's Mission right. program. Oh <laughs> man, you know all the dirt. Uh, you yeah. know all the stuff. You you spent you a You better year. not say too much, because <laughs> <You> <laughs> I knew stuff about you too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, It's it's all public for me. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so you spent a year. Um, Learning how to be a better disciple in that That's church. That's right. And, and, uh, I helped plant a church in a place called Carrickfergus. That's right. Yeah. Were well, you part, part, I of was planting part of that church plant? Yeah, is that right. I, yeah. I just spoke of that recently. Um, it's now called. Is there a um, statue of me? R- and <laughs> yeah, I hear it yeah, in the your lobby. Your influence is still being felt. <laughs> <Yeah. No. laughs> There's the uh, trauma still there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. Harbour Faith Community is a great little church actually now uh, uh, in in Carrick. I recommend everyone to go there. Yeah. So. Um, uh, but, um, so you, yeah, you did this kind of gap year thing. And I always remember you telling me that was where you realized, cause you'd left school with no qualifications. Uh, you just found this faith kind of came into this new church with lots of young people and you we were all young and, and then do the gap year thing. And then they, you get up in front of people and you start talking and you realize, People enjoyed your talking. and
1: Yeah, and I hated it at first. I remember yeah. even with that gap You're year. You were really nervous. Nervous, yeah. so nervous. And I remember saying to you, the, the guys who were interviewing me, I said, the one thing I will not do in this gap year, I'll do anything, but the one thing I won't do is public speaking. It's just <laughs> hate it, can't, can't stand it. Yeah, um, yeah. And at first it was terrible. I remember the first talk I ever gave, my, my, my brain went blank. And the only thing I, I could remember… I think it still does that the, from what I've heard. Yeah, like, that's you know. right. <laughs> Absolutely. You've seen me recently. Um, no, my brain went totally blank. and the my, o- blank,
0: my brain goes blank when I hear you. Well, speak, yeah. Yeah, like, yeah. Yeah, yeah,
1: Well, all I could remember was this, this… All I could think of was one speech, the only speech I could think of. And I just started launching into it because I was lost. I was like… We
0: will I fight have, them on the battlefields. Oh, yeah, fight.
1: Worse than that, I have a dream. <laughs> i have a dream and then yeah, i would yeah. say something random i have a dream and that's i said that brilliant. about five times that's yeah. brilliant, yeah. That's brilliant. Yeah. yeah and it worked and people liked it actually it seemed to go okay yeah yeah, yeah. um and
0: yeah so you learned that you could speak publicly yeah
1: and, and i kind of eventually i learned to at first not despise it and then to enjoy it and uh and then you started reading books and you heard about the
0: a person I'm sure is still very strongly influential in your life, Francis Schaeffer. Oh,
1: that's right. I did. I read everything of Francis <laughs> Schaeffer. Funnily enough, the weird thing is he was very influential. Yeah, yeah. And he, in what way? Well, he wrote, a, like, he wasn't, once I studied philosophy, I realised that his reading of philosophy is very strange. For anybody who's interested in philosophy, Francis Schaeffer has, I think he read the philosophers he talks about, but he mm. has incredibly weird and and all bad reading of people like mm. Kierkegaard and, ha- mm. and Hegel but um, he was quite good on on art and also he said if you want to know where culture will be in 20 years or 100 years he says mm. study philosophy mm. and I remember reading that and thinking I I want to know and uh, I wanted to use philosophy to back up what I already believed because mm. I thought I had the truth mm. right? I already had the answer mm. but mm. I thought oh I'll, I'll study philosophy, one, to get better arguments to justify what I believe, mm-hmm. and two, to find out where culture is going. And so he started me off on that journey a little bit. Mm, uh, mm. And, um, and he was one of the few evangelical Christians who took philosophy seriously. Mm, like mm. Even if his reading of Kierkegaard was, mm. was strange, um, he read Kierkegaard mm, and he mm. read Hegel and mm. uh, he engaged with them. Mm. And uh, he was also an incredibly gifted and charismatic person, actually. Mm. So he's the kind of, pe- kind of person I, I would love to have met. Yeah, I know his son, Frank, you know, yeah, uh, yeah, 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 uh, but he's a colourful character. He is a colourful character. He's a great guy. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Fiery. Yeah. Um,
0: Pete and I and our friend Gareth Higgins, Some some people would remember both from here, but also from America would know. He was one of the ones who founded the Wild Goose Festival. Um, But before that, he went to school with me at Sullivan Upper and then we lived together at Tate's Avenue Pete. And that was a f- that was a fun year for me. That was one. I of like. My f- it,
1: it, I always like to call it Tate's Modern because <laughs> it was falling. But it was like, yeah. it, honestly, it I think a, it was as bad as the House and Fight Club. I mean, the walls were. It was falling like a drug in.
0: den, but none of us did any drugs. Like, well, after a, you left, we had a couple of drug <laughs> dealers yeah, move oh, in, that, and yeah, then it yeah. got
1: really messy. Yeah, yeah. yeah but yeah. I think you were there. But in when those we days. were
0: there, it was all very actually kosher, kind of. And, uh, um, but the only drug we had
1: was worms. The game worms. We had
0: what was that? What was that? Sega Mega Drive? No, Nintendo. Or
1: and by the way, I think I like no, I know this. But I was the best Worms player. Yeah, yeah. Like, by so there far.
0: was a, a computer game called Worms, and you had four worms each. And I am um, pretty sure Pete used to call his after the members of YouTube. No, that's not true. <laughs> I'm sure that was you. I
1: mine were after the Emperor and <laughs> the Darth Vader. Vader and I was. You were, I was the Empire, cool. yeah. you were much more
0: cool. you were much more cool. You are the Empire, and we yeah. would you would kind of launch rockets at each other and try to kill the other people's worms. Anyway, so that was those mm-hmm. were the, those were glory days. That was a great year because that was about 97, 98. and I always remember that as a happy year because. For many reasons, the Conservative Party lost in the general election in 97. So Labour won, which was a sign of great happiness, that the world was going to become a better place. Was that, was that Tony Blair? Uh, yeah, which was oh. Tony Blair. Which, which, now you're doing, you're doing revisionist history. At the time, we did not know he was going to yeah. go in cahoots with uh, Bill Clinton. But of course, well then he ushered in the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, but also, 97 was the year OK Computer came out. Um Hell yeah. Great Radiohead really album. It was the year Pop came out, and I remember Pete lived in the room below me <laughs> for a time, and uh, I just remember you belting out if You Wear That Velvet Dress. What a, from song. That. <laughs> what a song. Just over, on, repeat. And on repeat. On repeat, just over and over again.
1: I would listen to little songs on repeat. It must have driven you all nuts. Yeah, no. You,
0: but, well, I mean, we all were a bit crazy in those times in our own way, you know. I remember going to your room, and Pete even back then still had, because you were then studying scholastic philosophy, yeah. you'd, you'd found that you could speak publicly, you could fa- you'd found that you had a brain, you could learn, you wanted to learn. Francis Schaeffer taught you that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I remember going into your room and saying, and, and of course one of the great books you had was a little book of parables that I think became influential in a certain way in your life. Mike Riddell's book, God's yeah, Own. Yeah, Mike Riddell was a New Zealand um, author, church planter and, yeah, it's funny because it's, it,
1: it's a small book and I, I came across it in Faith Mission yeah. in Belvas. We spent yeah. many hours in Faith Mission because yeah, I yeah. used to read very terrible books before I found By good By four ones. you get the fifth one. That's yeah. yes, right, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I spent yeah. many hours in their secondhand section yeah. going through chick tracks and oh, whatnot. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I came across that book, like some of my favourite books I find randomly mm. and that was a weirdly influential book in terms mm. of the style. He mm. was the one who I think uh, turned me on to parables, like I mm. saw the power of a parable because mm. of Mike Rodell's mm. work. And although I would be very different from Rodell now, and that book, uh, that style definitely mm. influenced me. Is
0: there one you remember that kind of stands out to you, either for good or bad, or
1: you in know, that in that book. in that book? You know, not really, because um, I remember a couple of them. They're like old parables, but they're not great for radio. Uh, so, yeah, but yeah, yeah. Uh, but it was he was very good at telling them yeah, and he yeah. was very good at dropping in a parable to, uh, after a little bit of explanation, he'd mm. throw in a story and that's the style that I really use in my work. Mm. So I write more academic-y type books but I'll always then try to bring a more popular angle mm-hmm. or bring a story and, mm. yeah. Yeah,
0: it. yeah. So what you've always done from those days even, like you were, you were kind of new Christian but you've very quickly finding yourself and very quickly always you've, you were able to plow your own pharaoh kind of like you 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 were never like for, for me for most people i think you kind of follow a trajectory that either your parents have laid for you or uh, or someone you look up to but somehow you were always kind of march to the beat of your own drum and kind of Doing unique things, one of which was tearing up Bibles in churches.
1: Oh yeah! So and the other was synergy. Uh, yeah, oh, <laughs> synergy. So
0: Pete would always come back with these hare-brained new schemes for how he was going to get rich and famous. Rich and famous—that's a uh, terrible way to say it. Well, he wanted to ever... be important. I think his big <laughs> longing in life was Is be important. Is that right? Just please <laughs> and he would see be like. Was, suddenly, we That's started terrible. seeing all these old VHS video cassettes. Piled up behind our TV, and we're like, "Pete, why are you stockpiling those?" And they were like, "It's my new um, company called—I think you called it a company or something. You gave it a grand title, grand title, and it was called Synergy." And we, but you laughed. know why?
1: Because I was so impressed with with the Zurupe tour, yeah, or the new yeah, yeah. tour, and I was like, the visuals, I was like, music and visuals when they're put together in the right west so powerful and so i was so inspired by that i was like so five
0: years after that tour (laughs) you started doing that so by the christian world you were ahead of your time by about 20 years but yeah and so you started doing visuals at at kind of christian events and uh,
1: there's a christian nightclub in banger yeah i did visuals that briefly yeah
0: yeah yeah (laughs) and i remember buying videos from some company christian company that had would just sell videos of visuals. I think visuals. it was just a regular
1: company. It was some yeah. weird company in Belfast. It just, I think they were just getting rid of th- hundreds of videos of like nothing, just weird things. Uh, yeah. But I bought a mixer, and so I would live mix yeah, these yeah, weird yeah. videos to create surrealist things. I did uh, some regular nightclubs in Belfast as yeah, well. I, so, yeah,
0: yeah it, you could have become big in the kind of <laughs> Belfast yeah, nightclub I scene. I could have made a fortune <laughs> being the visual guy. <laughs> the visual guy that comes <laughs> in and does it. Yeah, so... um and then, so what happened to Bibles? How did, what, where did that come across? What was that moment oh, yeah. in your life? What, I mean, that was did... a
1: very simple thing. And that was when I was still in the confessional world. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember just making a very simple uh, point that was, mm-hmm. you know, like I, I I started off by pretending I was doing a talk about the Bible, made it very mm-hmm. boring, did five mm-hmm. minutes. Um, and then did the ripping up the Bible, threw it across the room. And then I made the point, that, listen, that is not sacrilegious. What's mm. sacrilegious is that we don't embody it, that mm. we that the word is incarnated. Mm. Writing love your neighbor isn't mm. holy. It mm. doesn't matter if you print it, if you write it, if mm. or you put it in a tattoo, it mm. doesn't make it holy. You have to love your neighbor. That's, mm. that's it, it's incarnation. Mm. So that was the point. And uh, I remember- Do you
0: still kind of stand by that as a kind of- uh, Yeah, I mean, I
1: think so. I mean, I would articulate it in different ways now. But yeah, Mm. but I think that that is a a key idea that that incarnation um, means the word becomes flesh. You know, that Mm. notion of word Mm. becoming flesh is, Mm. I think it's a very interesting phrase. Mm. Um, And I think we all know that it makes sense in any line of work is that if you... If you say, oh, I, I love my mum, and then I go like, when's the last time you called her? It's like two years ago. Mm-hmm. I'm like, no, I think mm-hmm. you're saying that. Because mm-hmm. that's very key for me, by the way, um, mm-hmm. is that I remember people would ask me, what do you believe? And, and I would mm-hmm. ask people that question, what, what do you believe? And the assumption was that we know what we believe. And as I studied psychoanalysis, I realized that actually we don't know what we believe. That actually much of our consciousness is a defense mechanism to protect us from encountering what we believe. So I may say that I don't believe in ghosts, but late at night if I'm on my own and I hear some tapping on the window, mm. suddenly I put the duvet cover over <laughs> my head as if there's something out there, right? Uh, so I do believe in ghosts, yeah, I just yeah. don't know it. And so maybe I hate myself, but I don't know it. Mm. Maybe, like, it's we- it sounds weird when you say it at first, but it actually takes years of deep contemplation to actually discover what you believe. Mm. And a lot of my work in the early days was saying, well, if you want to know what you believe, don't listen to what you say. Mm. Look at your actions mm. because your actions will speak um, more truth than your words. Now, I would, I don't agree with that. Now, mm. there's a third level, um, mm. which is, called the symptom Mm. so some people say you know what what you believe is what you say Mm. some people say well what you believe is what you do Mm. but in psychoanalysis they say what you believe is discovered in your symptom Mm. and a symptom is called a parapraxis Mm. so a praxis is a is a practice right what you do Mm. but a parapraxis is something that you do outside of your consciousness you do it without realizing it Mm. and in psychoanalysis if you want to know the truth of somebody you look at their parapraxis, the thing that you do that you think has least you. Oh my goodness, I had an outburst of anger there. That's so not me. I, I, I'm not like that. Like Oh, that's interesting. That is outside. So just as we say the word paramilitary Mm. means outside of the kind of military uh, organization, a parapraxis is a practice that is outside the authority of your consciousness. Mm. And Freud was very interested in this. Mm. So more and more, I say, if you want to know what you believe, look at your parapraxis. For example, if every time you're going to see your mum you can't find your keys. That's a parapraxis. Mm. That why do you always forget where your keys mm. are when you're visiting your mum? Right? Mm. Maybe you don't want to see her. Mm. Or why did you have that dream about your brother drowning? I had a dream my brother was drowning. It was terrible. Well, yeah, but it was your dream, right? Mm. You mm. had the dream. So maybe there's a part of you that doesn't like your brother. And the weird thing is you're not even conscious of it. So it came out in your dream. And uh, so, I, yeah, a lot of my work was about how look at your practices in order to see what you believe. And now I would say, look at your para practices Mm, to see mm. what you believe.
0: So I had an experience around about the time I lived with you where I had um, a kind of a dark night of the soul experience that I suppose the echoes of it linger, you know, of kind of where you've grown up with certainty, very concrete certainty of what you believe. And then I went through a period of time where I really began to doubt everything, which for many people have gone through that experience and it can be shocking, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, you never grew up with that kind of system of belief, but I really did. And so it was a kind of a shocking experience to walk through of kind of going, I'm not sure if God is there and that freaks you out, you know. And I remember I read, I was reading a book, it was early Bonhoeffer, which you probably don't like as much, the cost of discipleship, you know, but he probably was onto that kind of more doing thing, your belief is shown by what you do. But it, it, it profoundly helped me at that moment in life because I had I didn't know if I believed in God and essentially I, one day I was I decided I think I'm going to have to be an atheist, but I wasn't a very good one because I was still reading The Cost of Discipleship by yeah. Bonhoeffer. He basically said like people lie on their beds at night waiting for a dream, which I had kind of prayed that God would appear to me in a dream that night to show that He's real, and He didn't, so I was now an atheist. I went down, read my book as normal because that was a very bad one. Um, yeah. And he said, "People lie in their beds waiting for a dream. Uh, God will never appear to them. You know, it, God only becomes real as they do, as they obey what yeah. they know them to do." And uh, and that was quite profound. I remember that day, kind of meeting a homeless person as I walked up Botanic Avenue in Belfast, and just sitting with him for three hours. And because I because I remembered Bonhoeffer says, "I've got to do something," so I'm gonna I'm gonna sit this is the only thing i know how to do we'd just been hearing john smith and tony campola oh, come to yeah. Belfast, telling us to love the poor you know so it's like well who's the there's a poor person i don't know if i believe in god but Tony Campoli says, I've got to talk to poor people, so I'm going to talk to yeah. him. And I remember walking away from that conversation. We could talk a lot about all of <laughs> that, yeah. you know. But I remember walking away feeling God in a way that I hadn't felt before. Yeah. Um, and that's probably what you're talking about in terms of doing. Um...
1: that. That That is basically, I think, that experience you had those all those years mm. ago, I would say is the first step towards radical theology. Mm. And interestingly, Bonhoeffer, in his later work, he is one of the main sources of, or the main, one of the main thinkers behind what's called death of God theology mm-hmm. or Christian mm-hmm. atheism. So Bonhoeffer's later work is definitely connected with that. And you see it in Kierkegaard as well, which is the idea that, that there's something about uh, your belief that is lived out. And of course, you even see this in the Bible. Those who love know God, for God is love. Those who do not love do not know God. Mm. So in the post-resurrection writings, um, you start to really see this notion that, uh, you see it, by the way, in communion. You have the bread and the wine, which is a symbol of God. Mm. Then you have the disappearance of it. You consume it. God is gone. So it's the nihilistic moment, the crucifixion Mm. moment. Um, And then you have the third part mm. which is where you're waiting for the return of god mm. and you get up and you start to talk to the people around you mm. and what you don't realize but the truth is that you are the body of god mm. that's the third part as the part is as you talk to your neighbor and reach out to your neighbor you are the return of god and that's uh, that's why in my last book i use the image of a magic trick christianity mm. as a magic trick uh, of course, there's lots of connections, interestingly. You know, um, Hocus Pocus mm. probably comes from Hocus Corpus, mm. what the priest says during, mm. at Mass, whenever mm. the bread and the wine turn into, you know, the body mm. and blood, transubstantiation. Mm. Um, but uh, in a magic trick, you have three parts. Mm. You have a coin, say. Uh, and I've, you, I've probably done this coin mm-hmm. trick with you. You've mm-hmm. seen my coin trick. You know, you've got a coin. <laughs> That's called the, the pledge. The pledge mm. is the object. Then you have the turn, which mm-hmm. is the disappearance of the object. So I make the coin disappear. And then you have the prestige. And the prestige is the return of the coin. So it's the three-part magic trick. But the coin that comes back is never the coin that was lost. Of course, it's a different coin that you've planted. And, um, and my work is to show that in Christianity, there is this three-part structure. You have a sacred object, the absolute God. You have the death of God. Um, and then you have the return of God. And the return of God is in the community of people who love. And so what you have is basically the sacred as an object that you love. Mm -hmm. And then what you get at the end is the sacred as a depth dimension you discover in the act of love itself. Mm. So in other words, you cannot love God. It is in love that God is. Mm. And that's a very, very subtle difference. Mm. But all of us tend to, in the sacred and secular world, we think of the sacred as an object that you love. But I think one of the radical moves in Christianity is that the sacred is not an object that you love, but the depth dimension in love itself.
0: Mm. Mm. Yeah. Um, When you talk about Incarnational, it reminds me of um, an album that came out during those years when we lived together. Um, Mike Scott, who's a lead singer and really the leader of the Waterboys, he had a solo album called Bring Them All In, which. This, this podcast being been recorded by Fras Sands and Safe Place Studios, and he has a band called Nalani, and they do a great cover of Bring em All In. Yeah. Um, I'd like to think I taught him that, that song. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you'd like to think that. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. But um, but you actually, I, had, I knew that album, Bring Em All In, and then you got me to play that song, Bring em All In, at one of the early Icon events, maybe yeah. the first one or one of the first ones. Uh, yeah, I oh, know. What was the other one? To the end of the world, the U two song. To the end of the world. Oh, I love
1: that song. Yeah, yeah. Wow.
0: I was very instrumental. Actually, I think Icon wouldn't have been excess, successful if you hadn't got me to play. Yeah, absolutely. You were the you were the linchpin.
1: <laughs> yeah. you were the cornerstone. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah, <laughs>
0: yeah. But in that album, um, he has a song where he, it's a Mother Teresa quote. You know, a wonderful disguise. You know. Yeah. And um, you've recently talked a bit about wonderful disguise and That's some. Right. things you were doing.
1: I do a course called Atheism for Lent, and we use that song in that, that course. And in, wh- in what way do you kind of use it? What does it mean for you? Yeah, well, I mean, my work is largely exploring the theological dimension of atheism. People think that atheism and theism mm. are opposites, mm. right? They're mm. enemies, mm. just like in Northern Ireland, Catholics and Protestants, mm. you know, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so never the twins shall meet. Maybe yeah, they yeah. tolerate each other. Yeah. Um, but actually the truth is they've had a secret love affair atheists and theists have the atheism and theism have danced together in very incredible ways Mm. throughout the history of thought Mm. and atheism for Lent which is what we do for Lent is uh, we explore the theological dimension of atheism so for example there is a type of mystical atheism which says that God is the word God describes something that cannot be described so every time you say God you say less than God So Meister Eckhart, for example, says, Mm. I pray that God rid me of God. He always says, when you nominate God, name God, you have to denominate God. You have to say, but God's not like that. Oh, God is love, but not like I understand Mm. love, right? Um, So, and I love the way churches are called denominations. Mm. So in a sense, the church should be the place that denominates God. Um, So that's a form of atheism. That's just one form. There's multiple forms. Um, But atheism for Lent explores new atheism, it explores uh, Christian atheism, the mystical atheism, explores these notions and Mother Teresa was a good example mm. for me um, She we do her in like week 5 because Mother Teresa, she had two conversions you could say in mm. her life one was when she was a very young teenager and it was this calling she talks about where she lost everything for God, it's mm. like her Garden of Gethsemane moment mm-hmm. she gave up everything for God But then in her 30s, she had this second call and she lost everything, including God, which was her crucifixion moment. And so for the majority of her adult life, she felt nothing but the loss, the gap, the hole that where God was. But at the end of her life, um, people asked her why she did her work she talked about how God was not in her inner life. In fact, that's why she wanted her diaries destroyed. It wasn't because there was some secret she was having an affair with mm. the Pope or something. Mm. Um, it was because she said, people think that the truth is in your inner life and in your beliefs. No, the truth is in the orphanages that were built. And so it was a it's a really interesting atheism, as in she lost the experience of God in a very radical way. But she said, but God is material, as in, The truth of God is in the material creation of a world that that looks out for those who are poor and suffering. Mm. Mm. Um,
0: Yeah, and and then, so you, obviously, you're you're in the school of radical theology and you've been talking about Christian atheism. Um, You know, I'd imagine quite a few people listening just... Would probably be struggling to go. What on earth are you talking about? Yeah, you know, in yeah. a sense, actually, old maid said so far. But can you kind of unpack a little bit? What on earth do you mean by that? Like, yeah. And if if somebody's listening has a faith, why would you want to? Why would you want God to rid you of God? Is yes, you know.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's obviously it's a big question, yeah. but I'd love to chat about that yeah. and. I'll, I'll just look at it from one angle that I'm interested in at the moment. Actually, I'm writing about this. Mm. Um, there's a, in, as you know, in theology, there's a term called kenosis. Mm-hmm. And kenosis is a, uh, is a term that means the emptying of mm-hmm. God. And so in Christianity, you notice this idea that God empties God's self into humanity. And then Christ empties himself into death, death on a cross. And then even further empties himself into hell. Itself, mm-hmm. and then what you have in the aftermath of this is Christ in the community of people gathered together in love. So, why is this so interesting? Um, and I I would say that kenosis is something that is not just a tree in the cultic sense, in the sense of Christianity as a liturgy of this this self-emptying of God. But think of it in the cosmological way: For, almost fourteen billion years ago. Mm. Uh, a singularity of, uh, let's call it a singularity of infinite density, mm. for simplicity's sake, uh, erupted and uh, exploded out and is creating the universe as we know it, right? It created space and time. That is a cosmic hymn of kenosis. It is the the emptying of this infinite singularity of density into the world. That, I would say, the crucifixion, Uh, echoes the cosmic kenosis. But also the crucifixion uh, ripples out to other events. So in the 17th century, we have the objective death of God. The objective death of God is where God was no longer needed as a hypothesis in order to advance science. So there was a point now, it goes before the 17th Mm. century, but again, just for the sake of simplicity, uh, there was a point when we didn't need God as hypothesis in order to do physics, biology, chemistry, uh, even ethics, politics, etc. And that, that objective death of God was a very fruitful time for the sciences. And then fast forward to the 19th and 20th centuries, where we have the subjective death mm. of God. And what that means, and Bonhoeffer talks about this in his letters and papers from prison, is when more and more people didn't require the belief in God in order to make sense of their lives, uh, in order to make sense of their guilt or their um, uh, idea of death. In fact, the 20th century could be said within Europe to be the point at which people experience what's called meaninglessness. Mm. Uh, If you look at the great art and literature of the time, there is a real sense in which the, uh, the great spirit of the age was a loss of a subjective guarantor of meaning, so a subjective death of God. And that was, of course, very fruitful in terms of art, literature, philosophy, Mm. etc. So that echoes the Mm. divine kenosis. Uh, My work is interested in how that happens in the unconscious, so I won't go into that now. But in radical theology, what they're showing is that this trend within the Bible of the death of God um is is echoed in cosmology metaphysics it's it's reflected in sciences the objective sciences it's it's reflected existentially in the subject and i would say it's uh reflected unconsciously with his psychoanalysis mm-hmm. and Freud and uh there there that's a that's a, a very brief summary of um yeah. radical theology right
0: right yeah and um you know, I think when I hear what you're saying and I think of the kind of this strongly certain um, entrenched evangelical belief that mm-hmm. none of us grew up in where you've kind of, um, you know, we've uh, God made man in his image and we've returned the favor. And <laughs> God yeah. looks very clear. He looks a lot like me, actually. Um, what That'll you're describing us. sounds uh, much more almost Jewish in its approach to not naming God and and having a... A questioning, a fighting with, you know, a,
1: um, a wrestling with truth. Yeah, Is that right. And, yeah, and my early work was very much that. An so my first book, especially, was very much about bringing doubt, ambiguity, and complexity into mm-hmm. faith, and it's showing how doubt, ambiguity, and complexity are part of the Christian tradition. And mm-hmm. the Jewish tradition, I took a lot from the Jewish tradition, mm-hmm. but my later work goes in a, in a stronger direction than that. Mm. And this is where I'm very influenced by the philosopher Hegel. Because my later work is saying not that doubt, ambiguity and complexity are things that you should hold in relation to your faith, but rather that they are the expression of your faith. So for example, in most religions, there is a place for doubt. Either it's a temptation to resist, mm. it's an evil, it is mm. bad, it is maybe just a natural reflection of our finitude. Mm -hmm. So there's always a place for doubt Mm. and ambiguity. But in Christianity, God doubts God. Mm. And that's really interesting. God and the crucifixion, we have the symbol of my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And with this, you have the notion that when you experience the loss of God, you're experiencing Christ, the experience of Christ. So weirdly, at the very point when you experience the loss of God, you are... Uh, you are standing in the place of God. You are standing with Christ. And again, that's a, that's a lot to unpack. But the argument is this, is that in in confessional theology, as well as in the New Age and paganism, so I, I put all those together, and in Jungian psychology, there is a notion that there is a wholeness and completeness, an original blessing, and then we fall from that, some disaster happens, mm-hmm. and we can return to it. Mm-hmm. Um, what I'm arguing is that uh, in Christianity proper, we actually start with original sin, right? I'm a big Calvinist here. <laughs> is that there is um, an original total depravity? Lack, total depravity. And you know what total depravity means? Mm. It's very precise. It doesn't mean that you're awful, it means that every element of your being is marked by a lack. Now, I'm giving it a philosophical reading here, but um, Lacan, the psychoanalyst, talks about to be human is to experience separation, separation from your mother, separation from yourself. You know, that's what guilt is. Guilt is simply the name you give to the idea that you're not who you think you should be, right? Mm -hmm. You have an ideal of what you should be doing and you don't live up to it. We all live between who we are and who we'd like to be, Mm -hmm. between what we have and what we would like to have. Mm -hmm. We live in the in-between. So separation is part of subjectivity. And what we try to do is fill it. We try to find anything fear money god a woman a man to fill the lack but the challenge is actually to make peace with that lack to find a way to inhabit it to make space for that it's like there is this sect of russian orthodox worshipers they were called the whole worshipers because Instead of worshipping uh, or putting statues in their rooms Mm. and praying with the statues, they would literally cut a hole in their wall and they would pray to the hole, to the gap. Um, And I really like that imagery. Uh, So in radical theology, the idea is that we think that there's something that will make us happy, whole and complete that's actually bad news. The more you think there's something that will make you happy, whole and complete, the more depressed you'll be, right? And religion promises that. That's what religion does. It promises happiness, wholeness, completeness. In its sect, I mean, I live in LA. It's the most it's the most religious place in the world. Every corner has a prophet saying, if you do the right yoga pose, have enough money, look the right way, you'll be whole and complete. That's religion. Religionless Christianity says that salvation is freedom from the tyranny of happiness. It's great to have the freedom to be happy, but we also need freedom from happiness. We need freedom to be able to enjoy our unhappiness. This is why the Irish are the closest to God, the Irish and the Jewish, right? It's because we are great melancholy people. Mm. We go to the pub, we talk about our brokenness, we write music about it, Mm. we sing about it, we dance, we cry. And in not trying to get rid of that, it's beautiful, one of my favourite quotes is by Kierkegaard. And he says, what is a poet? A poet is someone who screams and cries in agony, but whose lips are so formed that when they cry out, beautiful music is formed. So when we say to the poet, sing to us again, we are saying, may new disasters befall you. Yeah, that's that's mm. the truth, you know. Mm. To believe is a human, to doubt divine.
0: I remember one of my favorite quotes, uh, from, uh, well, I guess one of my favorite quotes of all time is Abraham Heschel. Um, I've forgotten which book he wrote it and it said, uh, faith is not the clinging to a shrine, but an endless pilgrimage of the heart. Mm-hmm. Um, and he talks about burning songs, um, et cetera. Um,
1: Oh, yeah, there's a. Can I tell you a, yeah. a Jewish parable? Because yeah, you did say, you yeah, know, you should yeah. throw in a story uh, yeah, or on, two, right? On, so a, yeah. this, is a, this is a really nice one. An ancient Jewish parable about this young guy thinks he's arrogant. You know, he's done mm-hmm. philosophy and all of this. And he goes to this old rabbi in his 60s, says, Rabbi, rabbi, teach me the wisdom of God. The rabbi laughs at him, says, You're in your 20s. Clear off. What do you know? Come back in 10 years. The young guy's arrogant, says, Listen, I know Aristotelian logic, I know symbolic logic, I'm ready for the truth that you can offer me. So the rabbi says, okay, I'll give you a test. He says, I'll ask you a question. He says, uh, two guys come down a chimney, and at the bottom one is soot in their face and one doesn't. He says, who, who washes their face? The young guy says, well, well, the guy with the soot in his face. The rabbi says, no. He says, of course not. The guy without the suit in his face, he says, he sees that there's soot on the other guy's face. So therefore he thinks I must have soot on my face. He washes his face, right? And the young guy goes, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, I see, I see. He says, try me again, Rabbi. says, no, go away. He says, no, try me again. And the rabbi says, okay, I'll ask you a different question. Two guys come down a chimney. One has soot in their face and one doesn't. Tell me, you know, who washes their face? The young guy says, oh, "Oh, I know the guy the guy without the suit in his face." And the, the rabbi stops him and says, "Stop trying to be smart. Of course not. The guy with the suit in his face, you think he can't feel it in his eyes, taste it in his mouth? Go away." And the young guy is shell shocked. He says, "No, try one more time." And so the rabbi says, "Okay, I'll ask you a different question this time." He says, two guys come down a chimney, and at the bottom one is suit in their face, and one doesn't. Who washes their face?" And the guy thinks, "Well, is it is it my first answer for different reasons?" and The rabbi says, no, they both wash their face. How can you not come down a chimney and not think you've got soot on your face? Go away and come back in 10 years, right? And when I heard that story, I was like, what is that about? Um, But I realised that within the Jewish tradition, often we think that religion starts when you have the answer. You get the answer and you join, Right. But within the Jewish tradition, it's like, no, no, no. If you think you've got the answer, clear off, right? You're coming into a conversation that's been going on for thousands of years and will be going on for thousands of years after you die, hopefully. Um, And you are taking part in a great conversation, a wonderful, rich, frustrating, and beautiful conversation. And the first thing you have to give up is this desire for the singular answer. And uh, yeah, so I think that illustrates what you're saying.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the desire for a singular answer. That's good. Um I wonder if we could because we'll come to the 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 final part here of this podcast, if we could just pretend You're pretending talk. you have a structure. Uh, yeah, yeah. My, my strong script here. Well, Let you do actually you have a structure. Uh, no, no, I just looked up. So oh, you just playing website. To last? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to stay interested while you were waffling yes. on. Yeah, you know? <laughs> telling the story. Um, so um, a friend of mine is American pastor, Brian Zond, and he recently um, kind of rewrote the the Beatitudes. Um, mm. A friend of Mine actually preached on one of them the other day at our Monday night meeting here in Ross-Trevor. David Armstrong wrote on, um, well, he he preached on this line that um, Brian translates as, Blessed are those who ache for the world to be made right. For them the government of God is a dream come true. Mm -hmm. Nice. Blessed are those who ache for the world to be made right. For them the government of God is a dream come true. I suppose what I would be interested in is taking uh, a lot of uh, the philosophy you're talking about um, and applying it to, in many ways, like the film we've made is a, is a film about um, what does it look like for people to embody um, in every part of their life something of, that, that looks divine. Uh, forgiveness, for instance. Um, it's a film about the the Northern Irish conflict and we hope to make a series of films looking at conflicts around the world like Lebanon, Palestine, Israel, South Africa, etc. and I suppose I would be interested in knowing, you know, what does it what does it look like for you, um, to, if you to to ache for the world to be made right? What is that Yeah. What does active kind of being in the world yeah. l- look like when you balance what you're saying? Yeah about avoiding a simplistic um, two-dimensional deity that we've created in our own image?
1: Absolutely. Well, I, I would say, first of all, I need to, again, just simplify a little bit. We could say that there are two tendencies we see when people talk about a better world. There is a conservative tendency to look back. The kingdom of God is behind us. It was maybe when we were young, we, mm-hmm. we idolize our youth. We idolize a period in history, a golden mm-hmm. age, or we idolize a time uh, before the fall of everything, right? So conservative vision is always looking backwards for the kingdom of God. And the, then the progressive liberal thing is always looking forward to the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is to come. There's something utopic in the future. Um, Now, Camus, the the French Mm -hmm. writer, he talks about the conservative and the revolutionary. Mm -hmm. The conservative who looks back for the kingdom of God, the revolutionary who looks forward. And both of them are unhappy with the present, right? You're unhappy because you don't have the utopia. But then, in contrast to the revolutionary, uh, Camus has the figure of the rebel. The rebel's fascinating. Uh, The rebel... This is a part of the book I'm writing at the moment is this figure of the rebel. The rebel is similar to the revolutionary. They are not satisfied. Their heart aches. They are in the world, but not of it. They don't fit. Uh, But the rebel enjoys their dissatisfaction. They like the fight. They get into it. They find meaning in the vocation to make a better world. They're not unhappy until the better world comes. They actually enjoy the struggle itself. And the perfect rebel is, of course, uh, that movie with is it Marlon Brav Marlon Brando um, in the he's in the Black Rebel Motorcycle Club. Oh
0: yeah, yeah.
1: Uh, is it on the waterfront or uh, is it? I can't
0: remember. I can't yeah, remember.
1: Yeah, but yeah, he's yeah. in a cafe, and this and this waitress says, "Johnny, what are you rebelling against?" And he smiles and says, "What do you got?" Right. <laughs> That's the rebel. You know, he, he can see mm. that he he wants he loves the rebellion. He mm. loves to be in the world but not of it. He has mobilized his dissatisfaction. This is, this is a problem His hysterics have. Hysterics are important because an hysteric or a neurotic, say, is someone who is dissatisfied in their world, but they haven't weaponized their dissatisfaction for change. So they have bad backs. They're always unhappy in their work. They're always questioning their partner, etc. But when you're able to weaponize your discontent and to mobilize it for transformation... That is where real change can happen. And this is where the kingdom of God is within you. The kingdom of God is within the ache and the struggle for a better world. And the beautiful thing about this is that you can enjoy uh, not getting what you want. This is actually, joy is a theological concept, interestingly, Um, uh, something C.S. Lewis got. I I have a love-hate relationship with C.S. Lewis, (laughs) but he kind of, uh, he understood this. Happiness could be said to be the, the pleasure of getting something that you want, whether it's a cup of coffee or a Christmas present. Mm. And joy is the pleasure you get in not having what you want. So if you think about Christmas, joy is the, the dissatisfaction of waiting for Christmas, mm. the getting excited, mm. da, da 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 And joy is actually a more fun thing than happiness mm. where you get the present five minutes later, you're bored. And uh, joy is this weird experience of being the rebel in giving yourself to a cause Enjoying the struggle for that. And of course, sometimes you'll win. It's like sports. I never under you're in the you're in the rugby, aren't yeah, you? Yeah, and yeah. you know I hated sports. Yeah. And you know, yeah. one of the reasons why I hated sports is because I had you
0: a, weren't very good at it. Yeah, I was terrible. Yeah. I was
1: picked last and putting goals. So actually, oh man, you really yeah. hit home there. I That's have good. Even it, you know? <laughs> I know they had to. Yeah. Um they uh Because I I had a very capitalistic spirit about sports unconsciously, because in in capitalism, often you're you're trying to get this thing that will make you happy and you're unhappy in the getting it. But then when you get it, you're unhappy, right? Um, You make the money. Mm. In sports, I was always like, nobody wins, right? Nobody wins. I mean, some people win games, but nobody wins the football. Right, you're watching football, I'm thinking like eventually you're going to have a, a mega game where two teams yeah. and they, and then one wins the football, I guess that's yeah. what they're playing for. Yeah. And then and then you finish football, it's over, right? Uh-huh. But uh-huh. then a friend of mine was saying, no, it doesn't work like that because the joy of football is not that there's an ultimate win, but it's the highs and the lows, being with your team when they're rubbish, being yeah. with your team whenever people are all taking the piss out of uh-huh. them. And actually, if your team won all the time, there'd be no fun in it. I remember, I think, Manchester United used to win everything. Mm-hmm. And there was, no, there was no fun for the people who supported no, Manchester United.
0: I know. I always said that. Yeah, yeah. Is that right? yeah. Guys support Coventry City. And so never We were in, the, won? We're in the, third, <laughs> we're the The only time we ever won anything was May, uh, May 16th, 1987. You see how FA much Cup. you remember because it's the re- only time. And my second son was born on the 16th of May, 2008, at Ridley. And I remember when he was born, i go, what's the date? What's his birthday going to be? 16th May. And i go something special about that day and I remember that's the day my favourite team won the only trophy they've ever won in their whole history. Oh, and yeah. So yeah, anyway, so go yeah, that on. That was there's the my, brief
1: moment of happiness with lots of the joy. United fans
0: <laughs> never knew what it was like for me to enjoy winning 1-0 against yeah. some crap team, you know?
1: That's exactly it. So, so you have those moments but but it's the, ple- it's the it's the joy of all being with your mm. team in the highs of being also being loyal to your team mm. and they're rubbish, you know, mm. in the mm. third division and all of that. Mm-hmm. And so... The problem many of us have today is that we can't enjoy our enjoyment. In other words, weirdly, it sounds weird when you say it, but we actually enjoy not getting what we want. That's why a lot of people sabotage themselves before they get married or get that job promotion. Because deep down, unconsciously, they know that if they got it, it wouldn't be great. It's like gamblers. Gamblers aren't addicted to winning. They're addicted to losing because it's only in losing that the win seems really good. If they won all the time, you stop playing the slot machines. It'd be boring, right? So we we often sabotage ourselves because we want the fantasy of the win. Rene Girard talked about this beautifully. He said, we are like a man in a rocky field. And we, we have been told that there's treasure under one of the rocks. But every time we lift a rock, we don't find a treasure. So eventually we will find a rock so heavy that we cannot lift it. And what Rene Girard is saying beautifully there is that We would prefer to keep the fantasy that there's a treasure that will make us happy than realize there is no treasure that will make us finally happy. But it's actually that realization that frees us to actually be happy, right? That's dialectics. So the struggle is enjoying your struggle, enjoying giving yourself to your cause, enjoying the highs and the lows. That's the kingdom of God. That's salvation. Um.
0: So can we um, maybe just kind of wrap it up uh, yeah. with one more question and then we'll have a bit of a discussion for those who uh, are Patreon supporters, yeah. uh, if that's all right. I know you got to get up, back up to Belfast. Um, I um, just wonder what this looks like. You know, if, if we, I don't know what you think about this, but if I, I think we are somehow shaped by what we, by what we believe and our beliefs in terms of what we do, and, you know, you talked about para, praxis, mm-hmm. Um What does it look like to be shaped by radical theology you know by death of God theology? what does your life look like? Yeah. you know you said we're not necessarily happy, you know we, yeah. we never find the treasure necessarily
1: yeah what, what does it look like yeah, I mean, if you want to kind of put it in a nutshell, I would say that uh, the universe. I, this is called ontological antagonism in philosophy, but the idea that there is an antagonism at the heart of life. And you can give it different words. So in, in biology, it's called evolution. Uh, in physics, you can call it wave particle duality. In mathematics, you can call it uncertainty principle. Uh, there's, it's in all sorts of different fields. Um, you find it. In uh, psychoanalysis, is called the unconscious. What this basically means is that we are not at one with ourselves and the world is not at one with itself. In fact, if you want an analogy for what the universe is, I think you could say that it's zero. The universe is nothingness, but it's nothingness with an antagonism that cracks it open. So what the universe looks like is one plus minus one because one plus minus one is zero. So it's just another way of Mm. saying zero. Mm. But um, we, we live in a universe of matter and antimatter, which is nothingness split, right? Uh, And returning to nothingness. And I'm saying all of this weird abstract stuff to basically say that we've got two options as humans, uh, two answers that are given to us. The pagan answer is that you can be whole and complete. You can find oneness. And then there is this radical theology answer, which is there is no answer. You can't find peace uh, or a return to some sort of unity. But mm. here's the trick. Uh, you can make peace with the lack of peace. You can find a certain assurity in your lack of knowing. This is what the mystics did. They had a certain certainty in their doubt. They had a certain assurance in their lack. They had a certain peace in their suffering. They find light in darkness. Uh, and at first it's so weird to hear that when we think, my goodness, if I go into doubt and unknowing, into the cloud of unknowing, mm. That I'm going to be swallowed up. If I, you know, if I go in there, I'll lose everything. But the mystic said, "No. The more you go into the darkness, the more you'll find the light. If you lose your life, you will find it." This is called dialectics in philosophy. So all of that to say, in radical theology, what one would say is this: We have a choice. We flee the antagonism that is life. The antagonisms within us and within our relationships. But then we will end up in a very bad place. Or we face the antagonisms that are within us. We look at our doubts. We look at complexity. We look at unknowing. We look at how we are a contradiction to ourselves. That we are full of a variety of different desires. I mean, that's what a symptom is. Mm -hmm. Like You may love your mother and hate her. And the result is you clench your jaw at night. Because what is the clenching of the jaws? You want to shout out, but you want to keep your mouth shut, right? Mm. So, you know, simultaneously, the antagonism that is within you is manifested in your crunching your jaw. Mm. You want to shout at somebody, but you also want to keep silent. And so in radical theology, it's like, actually, if you go in the flow of the universe, the flow of the universe is chaotic. Just look at oil. (laughs) The existence Mm. of oil is the existence of billions of creatures dead. Um, But actually, in doing that, in, in opening yourself up to your shadow, in facing your antagonisms, you will find peace. In doing that, you will become a healthier person, a kinder person, a more patient person. The fruits of the spirit, if in a religious mm-hmm. sense, will grow within you. And actually the problem with our world is that we constantly flee our finitude, our unknowing, our darkness. We, to believe as human to doubt divine. Right To believe and to have certainty and to think our tribe is right and we have, that's, that's natural, that's normal. But to open ourselves up to doubt and unknowing and the other, well that's divine, that's, that's very difficult and to do that you will become a healthier person. Mm-hmm.
0: I suppose the 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 film, to bring it all back to, to the film we made, was, you know, the original idea was the guardians of the flame, um, you know, religions like fire, like fire, it warms, but it also burns we're the guardians of the flame. And then mm-hmm. as we were putting the film together and editing it and putting it together, I realized what I don't want to be doing is creating a scenario where we are somehow guardians of a system of belief, you know, this kind of... Um, but actually, in the the stories of the people we tell in the film, are not people who are you know have their faith in a nice little box. Mm. They're people who, in the messiness of grief and loss, have have found a way to to walk forward and being truly human, you know, yes. being fully human. And so maybe the guardians of the flame is more about the flame of humanity itself, you know, yeah. um, which is maybe maybe the most pure kind of religion, you know, yeah. in a sense. Um, so yeah, Pete, um, I, I enjoy talking to you very much. Yeah. Uh, I wish I could see you more. Um, yeah, and uh, and I, for people listening, I I don't know how much everyone's gonna follow of that, you know, because we only just dipped into little bits of it. But yeah. I think you can you can follow a lot more of what Pete's written and his... What is it? PeteRollins.com? Peter yeah. Rollins?
1: There's, and there's some, hundreds of hours of free stuff yeah, out there. There's probably so. loads of people
0: writing um, exposés of why Pete is dangerous and bad, which yeah. is probably more enjoyable to read than... Yeah. You're, you're panning one <laughs> yeah. at yeah, the yeah, moment. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> This is actually a big catch in yeah. uh, the documentary about Peter <laughs> Rollins here. Yeah. Um, but no, it's, it's been brilliant to interview you, and I think what you've brought up adds to the, the kind of the work we're trying to compile and... And detoxify the world of um, of uh, and the idolatrous kind of nationalistic, populistic spirit that is growing around the world. Um, and uh, and and yeah, I think there's something good in there for us all. And I really like you. And for those who who don't know, Pete Pete is a great guy. Like I've always <laughs> said, for all the nonsense that he spouts, like. <laughs> You're just genuinely one of the actually nicest people I've ever kind of um, shared a house with, and, uh, and you've
1: only you know, shared a house with me and your yeah, wife. So I don't true, think that's sounding you know, very good yeah. for Jen. You're in the top two. You're in the top two. Um, but no, hopefully she doesn't listen to this. Yeah, she won't. She definitely, yes, she definitely
0: won't. won't. She'll be listening to uh, your podcast. Uh, no, anyway, thanks, Pete. And Thank maybe you, man. Um, it's been a joy those, to do this. Yeah, yeah, it's great. And for those who uh, who. Uh, Patreon supporters, we might do an extra fifteen minutes here and just have a wee chat about what we've just talked about. Yeah. So um, so yeah, if so please support uh, Guardians of the Flame, Patreon.com, Guardians of Flame, and you can see some That's more guardians down, of the galaxy. <laughs> <dot> com, <laughs> <Dot> com. <laughs> <laughs> and you can hear all of our wonderful content. So uh, thanks Peter Rollins. Thank
1: you to believe is a human. To doubt divine